Hey, welcome to the special edition, Late Night with RUF. Um, welcome back. It's like really good to see. I haven't seen many. I've seen most of you, I guess, but I haven't seen all of us together, and I haven't seen some of you. So I really appreciate you here. Um, did anyone get to meet Steph Curry before we just get that off the table? Okay. I got stopped by a police officer, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's a win. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, the former university fellowship, where Christian campus ministries exist to serve the campus, um, to exist to serve you all, uh, wherever you are, and whoever you are. And we really mean that. We mean it's not for one kind of person. It's for every kind of person. We want to be a place that anyone can come from any personal background where anyone can come wherever you are with Jesus uh, in Christianity. So whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, uh, we're really glad you're here. Um, and maybe even if you feel more comfortable calling yourself something between those terms or something that's none of the above, we're glad you're here too. And so that's all to say, thanks, welcome. If this is your first time, thanks especially for coming. Uh, it means a lot. Um, and I'm really thankful for the time that you're going to give to, to see what we're all about. So anyway, we usually we read the scripture. Am I like in the thing again? Okay, I have this, because of the night home room last fall, I have this like haunt, haunting. Um, so we're, I just wanted to do this real quick. Jackson's going to come read the scripture in a minute. But I wanted to introduce the series to kind of break up. It's a little bit of a long introduction. We're doing something a little different than what we typically do. Typically in RUF, we kind of march through a book of the Bible, or uh, every once in a while, like last semester, we'll look at a biblical character that spans multiple books, like Peter, um, because we really actually do believe there's a real value in studying the scripture as it was written and as it is laid out for us, uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We really do value that in our UF. But once every two years, we do, or you have to decide a, dedicates a semester to something more topical. So I'm going to try to introduce this topic. Uh, but before I do, some of you might have um, some apprehensions about something topical. Some of you might just be looking forward to this every two years. Um, you know, like Cook's Choice at the high school cafeteria. It makes feelings about that. The dumb, dumb mystery flavor. Is it always blue raspberry? Is that true? I Anyway, it's my experience. In reality, uh, we're going to still wade through the verses. We're still wading chapter by chapter of books of the Bible every Tuesday night. The difference is that I get some freedom to highlight a few subjects that I think are actually really pressing and important for us to look at together, for me and for you all as Davidson students to look together uh, and to learn about. And so this semester, we're going to look at the favorite devotional section of the Bible, Psalms and Proverbs. So you sometimes see those New Testaments handed out, and the only Old Testament part that's with the New Testament, those small ones, is Psalms and Proverbs. Okay, I read a website that had Psalms and Proverbs, how to read it in a month. You know, so Proverbs 31 chapters, chapter a day, five Psalms a day. It's pretty intense. Um, so that's that's a big practice that's been a tradition and practice in the church for a long time. Um, but really what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at these two books in what I hope is actually a practicable way. If we listen closely to them, the Psalms and the Proverbs teach us how to process life. They tell us how to process life. They teach us how to handle our emotions, how to make decisions, how to treat relationships, how to live more fully, wide-eyed and open-hearted. And so along these lines, I've got a title for the series which is going to be a very short title and then a long subtitle. Isn't that what I do every time? 
Um, so here's my title for this semester's large group series, Sorting Life. Okay, Sorting Life. Praying our emotions to God and applying God's wisdom to our decisions, ourselves, and our relationships. So Sorting Life, short title, subtitle, uh, Praying Our Emotions and Applying God's Wisdom to Our Decisions, Ourselves, and Our Relationships. So look, if we stick to the plan, we'll basically divide the semester in half and do two mini-series, just to kind of explain what we're up to. First, we're going to look at praying our emotions through the Psalms, and then second, we're going to look at Proverbs explaining how to apply God's wisdom. So tonight, we're looking at Psalms and the topics of prayer and emotion. Okay. Another brief word. I'm going to confess something for us. I'm going to confess something for me and for you. This is actually kind of difficult to talk about. These topics are both very difficult. I am underwhelmed by my ability to handle my emotions. I'm underwhelmed by my prayer life. And I imagine some of you also feel the same way, maybe about me, but also maybe about you. Okay. <laughs> Our emotions, uh, but prayers are also really important topics. So maybe may difficult, but they're also really important to talk about. And we don't talk about them much in the church. Maybe we talk about prayer a good deal, but we don't really talk about emotion a good deal. And so like you, I live in my head a lot, and I want to learn to live more in my heart. Like you, I want to be more alive. I want to feel more deeply. But I also don't exactly know what to do with all the emotions kind of charging through me at inopportune times, right? I'm afraid of my fear. I hate my anger. And I grieve my sadness. Sometimes, if not all the time, I feel that way. And perhaps like you, I just really want to know God more fully. I think this, this break from particular really has led me to want to experience him more personally to feel and to respond the warmth of who God is, his smile, his thoughts. I want to know what it actually means to give it to God. Right? You hear that every once in a while. What does it mean to give it to God? Or you've heard this in a one-on-one with me maybe before. What does it mean to do business with God about that? Okay, what does that mean? Thankfully, Christianity is actually beautifully teaches us that God is not silent. In fact, in the Psalms, he speaks to us in such a way that he gives us an ancient and shared, what I'm going to call scaffolding. Okay, so think of it this way. It's like scaffolding. There's a scaffolding that Psalms does that supports us as we learn to express our deepest emotions. Okay, but it's also scaffolding the set of set prayers in the Psalms. They steady us as we begin to build our own speech to God. In the words of a friend of mine, who's also a pastor, God in his kindness uses the Psalms to actually put words, his words, in our mouths. He puts his words in our mouths. And that he does that so we can actually express our whole selves, all of what we're feeling in every circumstance back to him. And that's what's beautiful about the Psalter of the Psalms, is that they actually a time and a place and a season for everything. Okay, so that's a lot. There's a lot more where that came from. I'm sorry for the super long introduction. But I want to just say Psalm 1 is a great place to start. It's meant to summarize instead of all 150 psalms. It's, it, it centers on an emotion that we all want, but we sometimes hard, find hard to find or maybe to express. And so um, that's happiness. And so, Jackson, I'm going to invite you up. You're going to read Psalm 1, if that's all right. If you're comfortable, you can quietly read along uh, with the Psalm 1 as a prayer. Everybody can hear me, right? Yeah. Okay. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, I'm back. <laughs> um, um, what do we do in most awkward transitions in the church? Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your words. And seriously, it is really prayers needed. Um, there's such a sense in which the Psalms are your given prayers for your people. And they're a great way to talk about some pretty hard topics, um, but also really beautiful and important topics. And I pray that that, that moment wouldn't be lost tonight. Um, in the midst of a lot of other things going on in campus that are really beautiful and good too. I pray that you would be with this group of people, that you would help us to see you, Jesus, to experience you even through these words, that you wouldn't let us leave this room until we knew you better and we knew ourselves better, and that you would, um, Jesus, be high and lifted up even in the midst of the Psalms, especially perhaps in the midst of the Psalms, that you would be seen more clearly by the eyes of our hearts that we want to know you more, that we get a taste of your goodness and your truth and your beauty, and that you be more believable as a result. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. So um, when I was a freshman in high school, I read this book, Fahrenheit 451, right? The temperature at which books burn, okay? So Fahrenheit 451 it's this sort of science fiction, Ray Bradbury story about the future. And there's just actually this one scene, it's not like, do you think there's some scenes that would haunt me, but there's actually one scene that haunts me from this book, ninth grade, it's a long time ago. Uh, in the scene, someone actually asks a question that seemingly stops the motor of the world. So let me set the scene for you. It's a gloomy, rainy night, and Guy Montag has returned home from work. He's, he works as a fireman in this horrific future, Instead of stopping fires, he, he starts them. Instead of saving lives, he burns books for a living because he's employed as a book burner, a censor. Okay, so that's part of the premise of the story. And on this particular rainy evening, uh, Guy meets a new neighbor, Clarissa. Nothing new here. She says hello. There, he's about to enter his house. It's most awkward. He's got the key in his hand. They start chatting. Um, they say a few hellos. They exchange introductions. And then Clarissa asks Montag this deeply disturbing question. When she asks him this question, it stops the engine of his life cold. And when he restarts his life, he can never again look at his world and at his life in the same way. She asks him like a really disarmingly simple question. Are you happy? Are you happy? At first, Guy Montag is angry, then he's sad, and then he's finally desperate. He's the man hired to burn books, and he starts secretly collecting them and memorizing them. What was useless and ancient becomes over time extremely precious and relevant, all because a neighbor girl got nosy. All because 
he began to think about his own happiness. And here's my really life-disrupting question for you, week two, spring semester. Are you happy? Are you truly happy? I don't mean like, are you having a good day? Like, every, is everything working out for you okay? Like, was the commons hotline what you wanted it to be? Okay, you did all the reading, week two, you're in it to win it. Okay, you remember the name of that girl who sits in the same class as you, and you had her sit in the same class as you multiple semesters, but you continue to forget her name. I mean, actually, you have this like resilient internal joy that acknowledges, but then rebounds from external waves of suffering. That in the midst of like steady, hard rain, actually this kind of anxiety that drenches the world can rebound. In the Bible's words, do you have a peace that surpasses all understanding? As you and I mentally answer that question, I want to say two things. First, wherever you are with the Bible or Christianity or Jesus tonight, to be human is to have this question buried in your very bones. Second, many of us, maybe even the vast majority of us, don't feel an all-pervasive sense of well-being most of the time. But we do feel this incredible cultural pressure to be happy. We feel like we have to do whatever it takes to be happy, to get happiness, to get the corner on that market. But this pressure isn't unique to the 21st century or Davidson College. In fact, like listen to the way that the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal put it. Okay, long ago, he's French, so it's even a different culture. All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive, happiness, of every act of every man, including those who go and hang themselves. Look, Pascal is making a timeless observation about how universal, but also often how fruitless the search for happiness is. And really, this forces us to ask the question, what if we're not looking for happiness in the right places? Maybe happiness isn't exactly where we expect it to be. Even as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room. So you can see like the question of happiness actually drives us to re-examine kind of how we're living life and what we're up to, what we're living life for, just like Guy Montag did in Fahrenheit 451. Is, Dave, is the Davidson way the only way? Are the game-changing alumni really happy? What if an ancient and sometimes personally censored book, the Bible, could point us to actually a higher happiness? A happiness that includes hard work, yeah, includes community service, sure, but comes from an intimate delight of a fail-safe relationship where we're treasured and prized above all things. In Psalm 1, our passage tonight, the first word and the very theme of the entire psalm is blessed. Okay, Blessed, starting in verse 1, we read, blessed is the man. In the original language of this poem, of Psalm 1, in Hebrew, the word translated blessed is ashrei. I would argue a better translation for our contemporary moment might actually be not blessed, but happy. Happy is the man who. 
Psalm 1 outlines what a happy man, what a happy person does, thinks, is, feels, and it shows us how to pursue happiness, how to, to root ourselves in it, to meditate upon God's words, the scripture, okay? And the pursuit of happiness results in a righteousness. That is a right relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with the universe. And it's said in Psalm 1 basically says this. It's something extremely counterintuitive, especially week two, David's in college. Okay? It says this. Happiness comes from stopping. Happiness comes from stopping and soaking in the scriptures. Because it's there in the scriptures that we meet Jesus and absorb his righteousness. Okay? So I'm going to try to prove that out in the next couple of minutes. But Psalm 1 traces this path of happiness and of righteousness by asking us four questions, which are on your handout. They're paired up into, into couplets or two at a time, okay? And basically, it's on your outline. But first, verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at two questions. We're going to look at who are you listening to and what are you rooted in? And that's really getting at this idea of how does meditation work? It's all fine and good to say meditate in the scriptures, but how does it work and what does it look like? And then the second set of questions, verses 5 through 6, asks us where are you going and how do you, how do you get there? Where are you going and how do you get there? And that second set of questions is rooted in, in, that Jesus, in how Jesus is at work, even in this psalm. And so we're going to begin by studying Christian meditation, which probably isn't a term that you hear very often, but we should hear it more often, I think. And we're looking at verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to ask the question, who are you listening to, and what are you rooted in? So look there with me, if you would. So like verses 1 through 4, if you look there, which I'm in Ecclesiastes, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Psalm 1, here we go. So if you look there, the first four verses, okay, especially the first two verses, they tell us the difference between a happy person and an unhappy person comes down to one word, the Hebrew word Hagah, which means meditation. It's translated meditation. Okay? In verse 2, the temptation when we hear the word meditate is actually to shift our minds and our hearts eastward, okay, to East Asia or to a monastery or perhaps the next mindfulness seminar. Okay? And look, while all these are actually forms of meditation, I'm not denying that they exist and that they are meditative, mostly they have to do with clearing your mind. And the word Hagah is actually getting at something quite different and more fundamental. And verse 2, meditation is what we do with what we constantly think about. It's what we delight in day and night. Meditation is how we treat what we treasure. It's what we, how we treat what we treasure. It's this cherishing, this relishing of something or someone. And for this reason, one biblical writer calls meditation the mind descending into the heart. We see this idea of the heart in the Hebrew. Hagah literally means to physically and bodily mutter. It means to murmur over something in pleasure. Okay, so Eugene Peterson sets a beautiful scene. Isaiah, the prophet, uses the word Hagah, or meditate, to describe a lion, the sound a lion makes over its prey as it eats it. That's what meditate, same word, okay? And here's how he puts it. They purr and growl in pleasurable anticipation of taking in what will make them more themselves, more strong, more alive, more swift, okay? So meditation is lip-smacking, audible mm-mms over the best of meals. 
It's true. Just trying to be faithful to the Hebrew people. Uh, it's something. It's it's someone so overcome with longing that he or she feels like she has to speak out loud. Like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, right? Muttering, "My precious, my precious," over the ring he's found. We had to have a, we had to have a Tolkien reference. There is better Lewis. Um, or maybe when you were younger, in your in like a private or thoughtless moment. You heard yourself say aloud the name of the boy or girl that you had a crush on. Oh, Johnny. <laughs> oh, Susie. Then you wrote your <laughs> then you wrote your name next to his name or her name in your notebook multiple times with multiple cards of Um In verse two, <laughs> meditation refers more explicitly though to a pleasurable muttering over a book, a good book. And it's really interesting, in the ancient world, up until about the 5th century uh, AD, no one read silently. It's a really interesting fact, okay? All reading was actually out loud. Even quietly, when you read to yourself, you read quietly out loud to yourself. You literally muttered. You literally murmured. Not murdered, but murmured. (laughs) So meditation, Haggah, calls us to this kind of visceral reading. We sound out the words. We memorize phrases and passages and meanings. We pray these words, Psalm 1's words even, out loud as our words, as our prayers back to God. And these words and these meditations promise to change us from the inside out. They promise to make us happy. But our happiness isn't some sort of like magic, magic like Harry Potter spell, right? It doesn't, it doesn't depend on the words in the right order. It depends on the content of what we're saying, on the voices we're listening to, often on repeat and echoing in our minds. Okay, So our thinking shapes our lives. And so we meditate. What we meditate on moves us. It moves us to walk towards a council. Okay? It's, it moves us to stand still in a way of life. And finally, to settle in, the word in the Hebrew here refers to putting our weight or our belonging in a seat of scoffers. And scoffers, by the way, are like so omnipresent in our day and age. They're cynics who see through every meaning. They're cynics who know every way the world works. They commit to nothing and they listen to no one but themselves. That's a scoffer. Verse 2 suggests that we learn instead we listen instead of those people, of those voices. We listen instead of the law of the Lord, with, with Torah, okay? That is, we listen to the voice of God as spoken through the scripture, not just the rules, not just the legal section and all the different rules and ways to behave in the Old Testament, the part that about January or February we hit and we stop reading the Bible throughout a year, but there's all the entire storyline of scripture, all the instruction of scripture Because to quote Sean Slate, behind even the laws, God stands like a lover behind her letters, like a father behind his phone call to his child. Or recently, like my six-year-old daughter, Carol, who literally stood behind her picture of our house, drawn to look like a castle, charming, and said with the words underneath it or above it, I love you so much because I love you. So that's beautiful, right? That's Those are God's words to you. Do you hear them? 
that still, sometimes small voice, oftentimes gets drowned out in the shouts of the wicked and the scoffers and the rest of this busy, media-saturated world. If I have to read one more article on my iPhone about Donald Trump, I think I'm going to throw it across the room. Okay? The idea is that we're crowded with space. But think about this. Look, if, if you recorded the inside of my head, even now, okay, and on an MP3, we put it out here, we played it out loud, which would be a personal nightmare, um, you would hear a series of voices shouting over one another to get attention. And I think your, voice, your head would probably sound the same, right? Constantly getting louder and louder about how I'm doing or how I should be doing in my life. And they're really especially loud when I'm least busy, right? When I'm waking up in the morning or I'm going bed, to bed at night. And I'm guessing you have these voices too. Perhaps that's why we're so often so glad to be busy, because we don't want to hear them. I mean, these voices have catchphrases, don't they? I mean, like, they, the monologues I have, they have, like, really, like, best-selling titles, okay? There's the, why in the world did you ever say that to that person? <laughs> That's one title. <laughs> okay. I can't believe how little work you actually get done in that time, in that time frame. It's another title. Okay. You look bad. It's another title. <laughs> he meant you're not enough. That's what he meant. And then there's my best-selling audio title of all time. Why can't you do anything right? You can't even handle not doing anything right, rightly. That's good, right? These are the voices of the wicked. These are the voices of the sinner. These are the voices of the scoffer. And sadly, sometimes they can sound an awful lot like well-meaning friends and well-meaning parents giving poorly timed advice. But listen to what the voice of God says. God's voice in his scriptures argues with your thoughts about who you are. Here's what God says to you. You're holy, blameless, and above reproach. Colossians 1.23. For you, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. I am remaking you in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that you might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5.27. But how does this not just become one more thing people like me say at moments like this? How does this not just sort of sit in our heads and never get to our hearts? How can this be our heart's affections? Psalm 1 suggests meditating on this voice, muttering these truths, praying these words back to God, God's words back to God, even out loud. And we trust that Jesus is at work, even in this process. And this is the beautiful thing about gospel Christianity, about the central message of Christianity. The scriptures promise that Jesus is praying our prayers at the right hand of the Father. He's praying with us. He's praying for us. His voice is out shouting the shouters. He's out singing the sirens. Jesus' spirit is groaning when we falter. He's making up the difference between our duty and his delight in us. By faith, Jesus Christ helps us. We may falter in our listening, but we cannot fail to meditate and find happiness in Christ. And that's the encouragement here. And this truth is picked up and underlined in verse 3. 
It's an image of that tree planted by streams of water, right? This image may look really idealistic. Oh, a tree, happy tree, you know, like, oh, beautiful. Okay? But a closer look at Psalm 1 understands what it actually feels like to try to meditate on God in a world like this, in a moment like this. It's so realistic. First of all, notice that the tree doesn't always bear fruit. It doesn't always succeed. It doesn't always prosper. In real life, there are seasons when the tree, when we do not produce, when it feels like we've got nothing. Life's natural rhythm includes, it requires downtime. It requires rest. It requires clearly demarcated no homework zones. But second, the Hebrew term translated stream actually means something more like irrigation canal, okay, from a river. And it's actually probably referring back to the time historically when the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament were forced to live against their wills in the Babylonian Empire. This is a tree that's transplanted on the irrigation ditch. This was one of the most trying times and places for the people of God to ever pray. But despite normal, even hard circumstances, the person who actually meditates on the God, word of God does grow, is rooted, and can experience substantial happiness even if he or she doesn't realize it, even if we don't realize it. And this is the contrast to verse 4. Those who listen to the competing voices who are blown back and forth, tossed to and fro by changing fashions and changing evaluations, changing judgments of who you are and who God is. These people, maybe sometimes us, maybe often us, are like chaff. We're insubstantial. They're insubstantial husks of a seed. They're driven away from happiness by shifting winds of circumstance, ultimately crushed and empty. And that's really getting to the grim image that ends our song. Okay, verses 5 and 6, our last point, and our final two questions. Where are you going and how do you get there? Verse 5 reads, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That sounds so harsh, doesn't it? Many of us probably didn't listen past the word judgment. Most of us cringe at that word. But why? Look, as a topical series, I get the privilege of looking at particular things, uh, particular topics like happiness. But let me, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll feel a little interactive here. Do you want me to talk a little bit about judgment? Okay, it's in the psalm. We'll talk about it, okay? Let me give you a few ideas why we don't, in our cultural moment, appreciate the word or concept justice or judgment. I tipped my hand already. It has to do with justice. Okay. Many of us despite, um, despise the idea of judgment because we have not actually seen judgment, perfectly just judgment, executed. We have not seen it done. And all of us have been judged poorly in the past, or maybe even in the present, right? Let's face it, human beings sometimes make terrible judges. Okay? Much as we try to be impartial to not take sides, we oftentimes play favorites, right? As much as we try to do what's right, our idea of right is sometimes twisted by self-interest and limited by finitude. Okay, we can't know the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Sorry, Tom Cruise. We can't do it, okay? 
That was over your heads. That was a way old reference. It's okay. We'll, move, we'll bring it back. We're getting back. So many of us have been let down by a judge, maybe a dean, maybe an administration. We've gotten in trouble with a boss or a parent for something we didn't do. These experiences have led us to doubt the possibility of justice. And therefore, we despise judgment. And the Bible actually agrees with this. Judgment without justice is absolutely unfair. Judgment without justice is just plain mean. But at the same time, I don't have to make this case anymore. We've all seen evil. We've all seen terrible suffering in the world. Some of you saw it abroad. Some of you saw it growing up. Some of you heard it ricochet down your hall two nights ago. Psalm 1, with the whole Bible, contends that this worldwide injustice needs a divinely just judge whose knowledge is not limited, whose knowledge is not twisted by self-preservation. In the words of theologian N.T. Wright, we need to remind ourselves that God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, and yearned over in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a, crit a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. So Christianity is hoping for the ultimate transformation of this world, the world around us, to become a place of goodness and justice. As we don't ignore evil as an illusion, and we also don't just try to hit the escape hatch when things go bad. Our hope for evil and our plan for happiness lies in God's just rule. So at its core, though, ideas of judgment included, verse 5 is merely trying to say this. If you want your life to end up in happiness and righteousness, you need, to, you need God to get there. Okay, so if you want those results, if you want righteousness, if you want happiness, you need God to get there, okay? Blaise Pascal, I quoted him earlier, okay, affirms this biblical thought. He writes this, all men seek happiness, there are no exceptions, we went through that, okay, but then look how he finishes that thought. Yet for many years, no one without faith has ever reached the goal at which everyone is continually aiming, that is happiness. All men complain, Princes, subjects, nobles, commoners, old, young, strong, weak, learned, ignorant, healthy, sick, in every country, at every time, of all ages and all conditions. But how does faith, how does God get us happiness and righteousness? Verse 6 gives us a clue. It's so interesting. It says, for the Lord knows. This word in the Hebrew means embraces, cares about identifies with, for the Lord embraces the way of righteousness. You see, unlike all of the other world religions and all the other human philosophies, I'm not saying these lightly, Christianity teaches that our happiness isn't up to us. It just isn't. It's not up to our meditation. It's not up to our scripture reading. It's not even up to our justice. Thank the Lord. Jesus of Nazareth, 
He's the blessed man of Psalm 1. He can make us blessed. 33 years on earth, Jesus did what we can only do in part. What we can only do at best in part. He delighted in the law of the Lord. And on his law, on God's law, Jesus meditated day and night. Jesus was perfectly righteous and perfectly happy, but he gave up his life. He put himself into the hands of the scoffers. He put himself into the hands of the wicked. He put himself into the hands of the sinners who killed him. Jesus became chaff on the cross in order to share with us his happiness, his rooted righteousness, a rooted righteousness and a happiness which we cannot work hard enough to earn. This truth, this person is what we meditate on. This person is who we listen to. This is what we root down into and hunger and live in. You see, we don't have to meditate on Psalm 1. We get to meditate on Psalm 1 and Jesus. All the wonderful ways Jesus' perfect love walked, stood, sat, and thought for us. The way he perished with the wicked for those who believe he did. And like a roaring fire, the closer we get to this truth, the closer we stand, the longer we sit in Jesus' presence, even through his word, even through Psalm 1, the more warm to the bone, the more happy we're going to be. So are you happy? What if happiness was actually where you least expected it to be? What if, to quote Blaise Pascal one last time, what if God alone is man's true good? What if God alone is man's true good? And what if, what if this, what if who God is were found in all the possible places and all of the world in a book? Would you pray with me? Father, um, I just do ask that you would make this um, something to rest in and not something to do. Uh, give us something, help us to, to realize what we want. Help it to be like a roaring fire. Help it to be warming to us from the inside out. Father, I know my heart is constantly instructing things to be better. Uh, but I pray first and foremost that you all here would rest in what you already have. Thank you.